Hungry Trilobite podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon is Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention. The next event is scheduled for June 24th through 26, 2002 in Norman, Oklahoma. However, they need your help to put on the next event. Please visit SoonerCon.com to find out how you can help make SoonerCon 30 a reality. The Hellmouth Convention The Hellmouth Convention is a celebration of all pop culture, but specifically things like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. It is held in Los Angeles, California, and the next event is scheduled for June 3rd through 5th, 2022. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship Fund. For more information, go to thehellmouth.org. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron, and I'm going to be your host. Today we're welcoming Edward LaRusso, a guy who has had an incredible track record releasing silent movies on DVD through the use of Kickstarter. I love this topic because it intersects two of my favorite, favorite concepts, archiving and rediscovering old media and bringing about new media in the digital world. This guy is the perfect intersection, and let's get started right now. On tap today, we have Edward LaRusso. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm good. I'm thankful you're here. I'm glad to have you. We share a passion for, among other things, silent film, and that was how I discovered your work. You're, I would say, a, a, a treasure trove of film preservation when it comes to that. Well, uh, <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who have done a lot more and have been at this for a lot longer than I have, but um, I've been working at it fairly steadily now since about 2014. Sure, but I'm, I'm just very impressed by what you do because from what I've gathered, I, I've worked with some of your Kickstarters, you'll obtain essentially lost silent films, restore them, and release them on DVD and digitally, which is a heck of a way. It's a transition from you're taking something from possibly not existing to in the hands of people that love it within a couple of months right. and for like 20 bucks. It's great. Yeah, I think it's pushing 30 bucks now because of the, uh, the postage keeps going up. But uh, yeah, that's the plan. That's pretty much what I've been doing. And how many have you done so far? Um, just wrapping my 18th project, which uh, is a film called Straight is the Way from 1921, which I don't think anybody has seen since 1921. Uh, it's a film that was sort of hidden away in the, the Marion Davies collection at the Library of Congress. And it, it was in her collection because the film was produced, originally produced by Cosmopolitan, uh, which of course was William Randolph Hearst. So th this is wrapping up the 18th one. That's, that's remarkable. And you come across these films from that private collection. I, how does that happen? Does, well, the Library of Congress is the only major archive that sells prints. Anybody can buy a print 
of a film as long as it's it's in the public domain and there are no donor restrictions on it. Um, and that's basically how I started. I, I, I was simply interested in seeing these films that were locked up, I think that's a term a lot of people use, in an archive gathering dust that, that nobody has seen uh, for a hundred years. So I started to just, just buy these just for myself. And then when the light bulb went off and I discovered uh, Kickstarter, which is a crowdfunding program uh, that allows, basically it allows you to gather funds from backers up front to pay for getting the film, uh, buying a film score or commissioning a film score um, and dealing with all the things that you need to deal with to produce the DVD and mail it out to the backers. So that's how I started doing this uh, through Library of Congress um, and working with people at the various librarians and, and archivists at the Library of Congress to find out what they have because it's not always the easiest thing in the world to find out what do you have? Is it complete? Is it in good shape? In other words, is it so riddled with, with decomposition that you can't even watch it anymore? So all, all of these things that, that, that uh, become part of producing a film that somebody would actually want to back and watch and have for uh, his or her collection. So that's how I started. Anyway, I started doing it just for myself and then it expanded when I started uh, utilizing Kickstarter and that sort of broadened the whole scope of things um, as to the quality that I could, uh, DVD that I could produce by going to professional uh, disc replicators and working with uh, and being able to hire composers like Ben Modell and David Drazen and Donald Soson, um, Rodney Sauer and the Mont Alto Film Orchestra um, to work on these projects and basically produce a professional product as opposed to a little homemade thing that's basically that, which is what I started with, which, which suited my my needs at the beginning it was fine for what i wanted but then it just sort of mushroomed from there <clears throat> to, to recap though i i just want to i i love the simplicity of this it, it, it it's probably doesn't seem simple to you but the library of congress exists to give people access to into records of historical value right but you know when it comes to films not everybody has a film projector just sitting around so that's not really a viable answer. You're filling in that missing step of getting it from being available at the Library of Congress to in somebody's DVD player. Right. Um, you know, in theory, anybody can go to the Library of Congress, I mean, in pre-pandemic days, um, and you can book a screening of a film that they have. You can go there and watch it. Anybody can do it. But this is a, a this is different in that 
they sell the prints and the other large archives do not because of the way that they're funded, uh, you know, Eastman, UCLA, et cetera, uh, Museum of Modern Art, they will not sell, generally will not sell prints of films. So this is the, the, the one instance where it's relatively easy to get a print and the print is either delivered on an external, it's a di digital, print is what you get delivered on an external drive or uploaded to a, a file sharer. And then from there, you just you just go with it. And sometimes these need a lot of work. They need to be um, a lot of e editing as opposed to preservation or restoring. Um, I guess it all it's all uh, a form of restoration one way or the other. But some of these films need a lot of work. You need to take out the real one begin, real one end, real two begin, those kinds of markers that are in their tint slugs. Sometimes the, the, the decomp is so bad, you really sort of need to trim out this little 10 second piece of film. And other times they're, they're pr practically mint. Uh, it all depends on what, obviously, what the original source material is and what shape it's in and what level of scanning the the library of congress has used to move the film from 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter film into a digital format and if the film was scanned 20 or 30 years ago it's still pretty rough compared to what they can do now but it's a, it's it's doable. It's in, it's available, and just in the last couple of years, I think a lot more people are going this route of go, using a crowdfunding uh, format or platform, I guess is the right word, to fund the film before it's available to release to the general public as opposed to the old business model where you would do all this work in the background and then say ta-da here it is and then put it up for sale and then try to recoup your your expenses well this is the kind of thing that under the old business model you almost had, had no chance of getting it out there because you wouldn't think there would be an audience for it here well, the audience right. is proving right. they want it right and that's why that, that even even now there are films that let, let, that that prop that are difficult to release or even to show on something like Turner Classic Movies because right off the bat there's no music score mm -hmm. so regardless of of any of anything else to to even present this to anybody you have to have music now, if the if the film is is shown at at a, at a festival screening, it, you can have a live music you know musical accompaniment to it, and that sort of fixes that for that one time. It's a one time shot. I mean, here's the film. Here's somebody playing, but that doesn't doesn't translate into producing um, media. So right off the bat, they're looking at an expense to come up with a music score 
for this film to issue it on DVD or Blu-ray. And that doesn't, and also doesn't involve then the, the cost of getting the, the print, the, the cost of whatever restoration the film needs, uh, you know, and whatever, whatever else a company like Milestone or Kino or Flickr Alley would have to do to get to that point where they can market this DVD or Blu-ray to the public. I mean, they're already thousands of dollars in a hole going into that. And then as you say, what's the audience? Is there really going to be an audience for this film? And so it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, that is a, that's the traditional business model, but that's a, also a very risky business model because of course, unless you've got a major name and it's a, it's a film that people are fairly, you know, that film buffs are fairly familiar with, uh, you never know, there's no way to know if you're going to sell, you know, a hundred discs, a thousand discs, there's no way to know. With this crowdfunding format, you basically, it's, it's prepaid. So mm -hmm. there, there's, there's no, there's no real danger. If, if, if the crowdfunding campaign funds, if it, if it completes, then everybody wins. The backers all get a copy of the, the finished film. Um, in in my case, the, almost all of these films have then moved on to professional film disc sellers. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to what I I can't think of the what term I want there, but somebody like Grapevine Video or Ben Modell's Undercrank Productions, where they then become available to the wider audience who had nothing to do with the crowdfunding. So at that point, you're reaching the same audience that the other business model is trying to reach from day one. But at that point, you've, you've, you've basically already paid for the work to get the film on disc. And the beauty about digital is that once you have that original master, you can reprint it for pennies on the dollar because like you just said, the work is all done. Right, right. And at that point also, and I've been really lucky, I've sold, I guess licensed is the right word, five of these projects to Turner Classic Movies for them to show. So that becomes easy for them because again, the work is all done. In the old days, when Turner had their own library, they had a ton of, of these of silent films in their library, the, the MGM films, let's say, without film scores. So many years ago, they launched a program. It was called the Young Composers Competition, whatever, what I can't think of the name of it, where they would then hire somebody to do one film and then that would get a big uh, premiere on, on that on that on that network but it's too expensive for them to do and especially for something something like turner classic movies uh to take the film out of the vault and then hire and it's the same process and then hire a composer to do it just so that they can air it once uh because at that point they didn't have their own 
outlet for selling the discs. So the whole Kickstarter thing then seems to benefit everybody all along all along the way. The film, the, the project is pre-funded. The backers get their disc. The disc is then available to the public through one of these other sellers. And in some cases, Turner Classic Movies even picks this up to show to the widest possible audience that a silent film can even have today. And what I love about all this is that this all happens because one person who, you know, you don't work for a DVD firm, you don't have a media job that I know of, you just decided you wanted to make this available, you put in the elbow grease and it happened. And that's the kind of thing that probably couldn't have happened 20, 30 years ago. You're right. It could not have happened because of where the technology would not have existed. Uh, what happened 20 or 30 years ago is that some small company like Video Brewery or something would go and basically do this and they would put a film out on VHS cassette. <clears throat> and very often what they would do is they would not hire a composer to do a new score for it. They would get some kind of generic music track and they would put out a film like When Nightwood Was in Flower um, or Brown of Harvard or something like that. But it, it would be uh, a low grade project all, all along, all the way along uh, through the whole process because the scanning wasn't very good at that point. VHS wasn't terribly good at that point. And then they'd have this generic music track that would just sort of grind away in the background as the film went on. And that was sort of the first wave of this whole thing when, when this started. But those were still small companies that were doing it. It wasn't individuals who were doing it. And with the rise of the digital era and the rise of crowdfunding, all of a sudden these things sort of came together to produce um, an atmosphere where if you want to do this, you can do it. I'm and amazed. Course, and again, without Library of Congress to do it, I mean, you know, there, there are still possible sources for films, private collectors, um, small archives, but I mean, it would be very, very, it's very difficult to do that. I've worked with foreign archives and it's, <laughs> it's very difficult to, to do that, to, to, to uh, get, get a film out of an archive whose business is not to sell these prints of films. Most archives tend to be territorial. It's like, oh, I've got the only copy of this film. And that's kind of what the, kind of the way they want it to be. So there's no, there's no real um, push for them to share. Library of Congress, since it is a public library, basically, that, as you said, that's their business is to store and make these things available. That, the, the idea that an archive would be that territorial scares me. I know you're right. I'm not arguing. But just the fact that they know how rare this is. They know it's important and valuable. And yet, if something happens to that archive, that one copy is gone forever. Why would you right. want to risk that? Well, I guess technically, in this day and age, there, prob there probably is not just a copy 
of it. They probably have multiple copies, but uh, they have basically in one form or another, and no matter how many versions of it they have, they, have, they may have the only prints of the film. Uh, and, and we see this all the time where uh, a film is discovered at, at the, the, the Gus Filmathon in Moscow or in an Italian or, or uh, French archive. Uh, and sometimes a company can, you know, some, something, somebody like Kino or Milestone can work with them to get the prints out of the archive. Um, but in many instances, it doesn't happen. And it, it's the same way, same with the, the big archives in, in this country. It's not necessarily just the foreign archives. Uh, it's, that's not their business. That's, their business is to maybe restore and preserve and archive. Their business is not to, to sell it. And, and I think it, because they're, they're sort of private, they're privately funded, they can't decide to we're all oh, we're just going to start selling these prints. Then again, it's probably not worth it to them to sell it. You know, if you pay a thousand bucks for a print to, to something like UCLA, eh, you know, it, that doesn't mean anything to them. That's that's a very good point and it's something I don't consider as much as I should. You did mention a couple of times uh, the soundtracking and scoring of these, which for somebody who's not into silent film is not an obvious point. They don't think of that because it's a silent film. They don't realize that there was an art form behind the music behind them. Right. How do you fill that gap? Well, if, for anybody who's tried to watch a silent film in a silent form, it's difficult, no matter what the film is. Um, if it's a, a Chaplin comedy or a, a, a big dramatic film, you have to have you have to have that musical accompaniment. It, it, it needs it. It's part of the the art of silent film, uh, and a good score emphasizes and complements a silent film as opposed to competing with it or with the old. <clears throat> with the old films, it, it's not just some music track grinding away in the background. Um, so I've been lucky enough to work with some people who really specialize in this and who understand the art form and who are able to produce um, a music score that brings out the best in the silent film. In other words, it doesn't drown out the silent film with, oh, look, here's my music score. It's so wonderful. Listen to this. And it, it's, it's, it's a secondary thing in the film, the film being the primary. So anyway, I've been, I've been lucky to work with people who understand this, who are practiced in this, and who are damn good at it. So how often when you get a movie, do you have any record of what the original score would have been like? Is it completely never? It's almost never because a lot of them didn't have scores. Toward the end of the silent era, it was, it was more likely that they had a score because it was, it was much more sophisticated and 
the movie houses across the country that were showing these films were more sophisticated. Before, before let's say 1927 or 28, they, there might've been a score written for a film, but it might've only been for the premiere of the film or it may have only been um, utilized in big cities that could afford to actually have an orchestra to accompany the film. Um, a lot of times th there might've been just like a song, one song that was written might've been you know, song, uh, the title song or something. And then that would be up to the local showing to wherever it was being shown to utilize that music. But I mean, it, you know, it's the old stereotype of, you know, people sitting there watching the screen and there's the, the, the person sitting down in the pit pounding away on a piano and that's it. It's just somebody playing a piano and basically, and I think for a lot of those, that stereotype is probably true. And they were probably just playing um, just whatever came to their, into their heads as the film was going on, because there wasn't a score. It wasn't like, you know, we're going to show Ben-Hur. Here's the score. This is what you must play. So That's, the, go ahead. So the, the music part of it was always sort of a, a tricky part because Seeing the seeing movie X in New York City would have been a completely different experience than seeing it in you know some small town in, in the Midwest, simply because because of the music. The film would would have been exactly the same, but the musical accompaniment could have been wildly different depending on where, where you saw it. So. And recreating that in, in, you know, for today's audiences using today's media, you're in a way keeping in the spirit of the original showing, putting the spin on it that you think is best. Right, right. I've also heard that there were conflicting reports that maybe some venues would actually have people reading the, the, the text cards aloud and that wasn't super common, but it did happen. It probably happened. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine how that would go over, but um, it's part of the, the whole situation that a silent film was never really silent. Mm -hmm. There was always something um, going with it. A lot of silent films, especially in the big cities, had um, pre-shows, they had stage shows that were some, sometimes tied into the theme or the story of, of the film. So when you went to see the silent film, you also got to see like a little vaudeville sketch along with not, it. That's really interesting. Um, the, there's the old story of, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the 50s, you had people like, was it William Castle, I think, who would show his schlocky horror films and put buzzers under seats and at certain points it you know zap people with these electric currents and stuff mm -hmm. but in, in silent films they did the same kind of you know same kinds of things um it the, famously the lost film cecilia of the pink roses in 1918 a marion davies film and william randolph first uh, for the big cities, what he would do is he would fill the, the theater with these 
bowers of roses. And then at, so that the whole theater was filled with the, this rose scent. And then at the, the big dramatic moments, they would turn on these fans and it would drive this rose scent into the auditorium at, uh, over the audience. So th there were always sort of these, these tricks, um, things to, to do when they were showing films um, that were, I guess, interactive um, for that, that time. And the music was the same thing. I mean, that's, that's what a good music score did. I mean, you weren't, you weren't playing Yankee Doodle Dandy on the piano during a big love scene. I mean, you, 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 everything came together but there were all of these elements that, that came together that weren't part of the actual film. Um, they may have, I, they used to, to issue cue sheets that might give, give a, a pianist in a small town the idea of to what, what song to play at this moment. But obviously the, the experience would still have been dependent on what actually was played, how well it was played, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a much more kind of like live TV. Mm -hmm. You never really knew what you were going to get. Going to the same film twice would, uh, you'd get two different, different experiences. I, I, for while you were describing that part in the back of my head, I was comparing it to like playing YouTube roulette where you just, skim down there type in anything and see what comes up because it's it's some people just find the 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 challenge of, of seeing a new experience to be novel and and back when films were new everything was novel right right yeah and and it, the thing is when you know if you went to a, a, a theater in 1914 i mean you probably didn't expect much more than to have you know somebody playing a piano in the corner of the room. Um, and it, there may have been instances where it was somebody on a banjo or a violin. I mean, there, there, was, there, there were no standards. Everything was completely dependent on where you were and what resources were available. Very true. And it, uh, just the movies that were cut and recut and pirated because there were no standards as to what was supposed to be shown and what wasn't. Right. And it was a, a very wild, wild West era in, in terms right. of film at the time. Right. If you look at the, 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 the early films of D.W. Griffith, he would, he would, uh, he, his company, American Biograph, and he would artfully insert the initials A.B., in various scenes, um, in various locations in scenes, like on the curtains or on a wall, on a stair, something so that somebody couldn't steal that film because that AB was like a brand and it would be imprinted in various places in the film. And he would move it around so that you couldn't just go and crop out the, the top corner, you know, as you would see a logo or something now, uh, he would move it around specifically to protect the film so that other people couldn't pirate it. it it's, it, the piracy is with us been even that long. It's, it's remarkable. The pirates were, were there at the very beginning. <laughs> Which shows it was worth something. You wouldn't pirate something that had no value. Right, right. 
And the thing was, with, in the, in, as you say, in those wild days at the beginning, um, the audience wouldn't have known the difference. No. If the film was, had been produced by somebody else and you know, the one you were watching was a pirated version in a Nickelodeon in New York City, I mean, you would have no idea. There would, there would be no way to, to know. And I mean, that was sort of an early business model. It was easier to steal someone else's film than to make your own. Well, speaking of making your own, I happened to come across a, a reel of an eight millimeter cartoon that I can't find any, any digital version of. What do you think the best method would be to get it into digital? Should I get the equipment myself? Should I farm it out? What, what do you want to do with it? I would like to take the film in and convert it into digital to be shared. And There are companies that do that. Um, so it's, it's, it's actual film stock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there are companies that do that. That would probably be easier. I, I, I know in this day and age, you can buy a, a video scanner and do it, but it's, they're, they're, I think they're still very expensive to do. Probably would be easier to farm it out to somebody. I figured I would ask since you've done it so many times and you're, you're more in that kind of business that I, take, I trust your expert opinion on it. Are you by any chance familiar with the movie, The Cat's Meow? The Bogdanovich. Uh, this, uh, it actually has. Uh, 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 oh, geez, all the names are escaping me now. But uh, it's the Mar the Marion Davies one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The the one about the the uh, the Tom the Thomas Thomas Ince Thomas yep. Ince killing. Yeah. Yeah. What was your take on that? Do you think it was a, a good representation of the time? Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it, it, I, that was a Peter Bogdanovich film, and I think he captured the spirit of the time very well. They did fairly well in casting uh, Kirsten Dunst as Marion Davies, Edward Herman as uh, William Randolph Hearst. Not so good with ca the casting of Chaplin. That's that's one of those. Hollywood scandals uh, of, of the, the 20s that was never resolved. It probably never will be resolved. Uh, Hearst was the wrong person probably to uh, try to try to pigeonhole in, in a scandal since he controlled the media. Uh, and the studios, the, even even in the early twenties, the studios had a lot a lot of power in silencing the police and the legal system to protect the product. <laughs> it's it's a movie I love very much, and I just wanted to the people who actually know the subject matter a lot. I always like to pick their brain on it. Well, it's it's one of the it's it's the type of thing that it it was sensationalized, and, and much as things are today, to a certain to to a certain point where everybody believed believed it up to a uh, it was easy to believe. 
But if you read the, the, the uh, Marion Davies herself talks about it in her memoir, The Times We Had, and she basically just goes through it. One, two, three, four, dis dis uh, dismissing the whole thing. Uh, that, you know, the, the whole point, the, 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 the crux of the story is that Marion Davies was having an affair with Charlie Chaplin. They were on the, the, the yacht, the Oneida. Hearst saw them and tried to shoot Chaplin because he caught them in the act, except that it wasn't Chaplin, it was Ince, and Ince got shot and died. That's the crux of the story. Uh, but the, the medical records that, are, that exist don't bear that out. But it made for a nice, it made for a nice story. Sure. Uh, so, but the, to get back to your work, that so straight of the way, straight is the way is your current Kickstarter. It is going right. fairly well, from what I've seen. Yeah, it's got a couple couple more days to run, and that that will end that one. It'll probably be done by the time this hits the internet. But do you have a project lined up after this? I've got yeah, I've got one. I, I may do. Um, well, I don't really want to name names at this point, but I do sure. have one. It may be a, a double feature of a couple of rare um, features from 1917 that I've gotten hold of from the Library of Congress um, sure. that have not been seen since they were initially put out. Um, and we just finished um, Xander the Great finally wrapped um, a couple a month ago, uh, the, the Marion Davies film and that one finished and that'll be coming out on DVD generally to, at the end of the year. So I try to always have at least one or two projects ahead at this point, because as I said, sometimes these things, sometimes the films are pretty much ready to go you get this fabulous print. I mean, amazing, amazingly fabulous print from Library of Congress. Uh, and sometimes the, the source material just isn't, isn't quite that good and you really have to kind of work at it a little bit to try to bring it up. Okay, well, but the, the Xander the Great one was interesting in that it was a scan of the original, the 1935, the 35 millimeter print and it had the original tinting scheme oh. in it and that's a whole other aspect of silent films is that uh, they weren't always just black and white there would just sometimes be the, the oh, high films very often had uh very nice tinting schemes involved sometimes there was hand coloring mm -hmm. um you know etc etc I was going to say that was exactly what I was going to say that sometimes they would tint them to achieve a certain effect or right. they would, they hand color to, to actually create almost a painted effect, which is right. I've seen it done today and it looks gorgeous. Right. Yeah. In, in the in the, the film that was just released. Um, again, with Marion Davies, the uh, lights of old Broadway, there were, were two sections that were hand colored. And I mean, and that's going back to the very earliest days of, of film where they would take it frame by frame and paint in certain effects on the film 
frame after frame after frame after frame. And there, there's the, the story there is that Edison is going to uh, illuminate New York City with his new, new invention, the electric light. And there's this one scene where the lights come on and it's the American flag. And it's hand colored in red, white, and blue. I mean, it's amazing. I can imagine when that film is 90, 100 years old or even more, that paint is the first thing to go when it comes to preservation. Right, right. And a lot of times when the, the films were preserved, even if there was a originally colored, the, the whole film would just be preserved in black and white. I mean, that's just what they did. I mean, sure. all they were doing at, at a certain point was they're just preserving it just to make sure that it's off the uh, the 35 millimeter and onto some kind of safety stock. And that's, that's admirable. I don't want to downgrade that because it's, we want this stuff preserved. We want people to have access to it because there's a, there's a wealth of stuff out there waiting to be discovered. Oh yeah. Right. And, and we now finally have the tools to do it. I mean, for years, like we were talking about before, watching movies meant VHS, which had its own shelf of problems we don't even need to get into. And, and film stock was out of the hands of most people. And now it doesn't matter what something was made on originally. We can get it into the hands of the people that want it. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, that's great. That's one of the great things of uh, the, you know, the digital age is that um, it's safe now. We're at the point now where we're not dependent on that one fragile print sitting on a shelf someplace in an archive. I mean, mm -hmm. Once these things are um, have have hit the digital digital world, um, we'll probably have them, you know, forever, whatever forever means. But I mean, they're 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 basically saved at this point, and. It's interesting that you've got some people like me primarily interested in features, but there's a whole other world of people out there who are uh, fanatics about the, the one and two real comedies that, that came up by, you know, by the hundreds, by the thousands, I mean, of, of these films. Um, so, but that's good. I mean, we've got all these sort of niche people who have their various interests and they're still able to, to um, access these films and get them onto uh, digital media. Cartoons, same thing. There are people who are very much into the, the cartoons. And I, I, a lot of cartoons done in the silent era. I confess, I, one of my biggest interests is in science fiction. And that wasn't a huge genre at the time, but there, there were examples of fantastic stories and, and, and off-ball adventures that I, I do love those as well when I can find them. The silent film really, it covered everything mm -hmm. with the exception of obviously the musical. <laughs> but I mean, you know, people, some people tend to think that it's either gonna be a slapstick comedy or it's gonna be some over the top uh, gooey romance film, but that basically there was everything. I mean, any any genre that you can think of was covered at some point in silent film. It was basically the mentality people have today of saying, "I just got a new cell phone. Let's see what we can do with it." And that's right. what they did with their cameras. Right, right. 
I mean, well, silent so film. I mean, there was everything. I mean, they mm -hmm. did location shooting. They did. They did color. They did. Uh, there, there were. Uh, experiments with with talkies long before the you know Al Jolson and the jazz singer. I mean they, they, everything. They they were constantly innovating and trying to do new things, new new kinds of shots, new new angles uh, with doing things with cameras um, that people couldn't even do today. You know, you've got a whole lot of information here and I have neglected to mention you have a blog on this very topic where you cover a lot of this stuff. So somebody interested would definitely want to be reading that. And I'm going to make sure I put the link to that in the show notes on my website. Okay. Is there any, uh, you have a social media pages as well. People can follow your restoration efforts. Um, no. Yeah, I thought I had you on Twitter. I, I'm not my mistake. Oh, well, Twitter, Facebook, but I, I don't have, I mean, I don't have a page. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, or I a will. Website. Um, no, I don't. Don't deal with that. Sure. Well, I'll make sure your Kickstarter and blog go in the show notes on my, my site. Um, I'm going to recommend people jumpstart, uh, sponsor your next Kickstarter because the product you get, I will vouch for it. It is well done. It is well made. I I enjoy it greatly, and I make sure it goes in my personal archive. Good, thank you. Well, thanks so much for being here, and I would like to have you back anytime. Okay, great. I would like to thank Ed for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. Keep in mind that I'm going to put all of his information in the show notes on my website, aaronbosick.com, and those are going to have links to his current and possibly future Kickstarter efforts. If you think any of this sounds cool, I highly encourage you to check out his Kickstarters and possibly support them. He provides a fantastic value for the money, and it's a service to, I'm going to say, to film history and to humanity in general that we keep these movies preserved. For the community building part of the show, I'm going to ask if you are doing a project like this or that even resembles this where you're using new media and old media simultaneously, keep me in the loop. Reach out to me at bossigpodcast at yahoo.com or at my Twitter at Aaron Bossig. Let me know what's going on. I'm really excited about the creativity of my audience. You can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.